acuerdan es everything. Anglo Oh my god, you people have just failed me, failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland, we have just gone full That just explains so much of my childhood to me. Research purposes, it's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. And welcome to episode 27 of the Anglophies. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. My god, Kaylee sounds so great. (laughs) I got an early Christmas present from yours truly. (laughs) I was so so afraid that it wasn't going to get there. Anyway, in this episode, um, we have Diane Duane of the, yep, Alina's super excited, um, of the Young Wizard series. She has written an episode of Star Trek. She wrote a couple episodes of Gargoyles. She wrote Dinosaurs, which is a show that I completely forgot existed, but I loved it when it was on, um, along with a number of other things. And we talked to her for a good half hour. We have to apologize for the audio. She was recording in a pub. And it sounds like she's recording in a pub. And I'm going to do my best to soften the background noise. But you is a pub in Ireland. Which is cool. And it's Dan Dwayne. I don't even care. This is the best day of my life. <laughs> Never mind her wedding day. No. <laughs> I didn't have a wedding. We went to the courthouse. Who cares about that? <laughs> We're going to make sure everyone hears like, that. <laughs> talking to Dan Dwayne, touching Hugh Jackman's hand, and then marrying my husband. Wow. <laughs> That's the hierarchy of my life. <laughs> no, but it, it, it was great. Yep. Uh, no, no, this is kind of the story of you know, 10-year-old Alina in her room in Russia reading these books and being, oh, these are so great. They, I love wizards and they're kids and they're saving the world and they are in mortal danger and there's real stakes and the books are amazing. And then, you know, 20-something-year-old Alina in Canada, oh, there are more books to the series. That's great. And then two and a half years ago, Raiden said, hey, do you want to be on the podcast with me? And I said, someday I'm going to gather up the courage and ask Dan Dwayne to be on this podcast with us. And she did. And then about a month ago, I said, okay, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And she was super nice. She said yes, and it was great. So, yeah, that is episode 27, and we hope you enjoy it. So there we are. How's that? There we are. Hi, there we go. Hi, guys. So listen, how is your audio? I'm I'm in the middle of a a local pub, and... uh, it's got how, a very atmospheric background chatter. <laughs> That's okay. We we are fortunate in having the library bar at the Central Hotel in Dublin. This is one of the very few bars in the city that has no music, no TV, nothing but the sweet sound of human voices. Nothing. And the whole place just looks like, you know, the background of a, a good Pratchett novel. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is this is the place to be. He will be along. He is uh, apparently down having a martini or planning to go down and have a martini at, at the bar that's immediately attached to the hotel. 
and uh, it's it's a Saturday afternoon in town. We're we're leveraging the pre-Christmas madness because it's about to get very mad. <laughs> so what what can I tell you? What are, what are, what are we on about today? Uh, we had a whole list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did. We've had um, writers, well, bloggers and writers uh, as guests in the past, but uh, we've had Sean and McGuire. Mm. And I thought the interesting thing about having you on is you can give us a really great perspective on kind of being a public person like a writer, you know, making things for public consumption and moving from an age of when you didn't have as much um, engagement with the readers to, you know, the age of social media. Sure. It's it's very different. It, it, it's a sea change, literally, between the way it was 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Um, you know, suddenly the, the people you wanted most to touch directly are within range. Yet, at the same time, the people who have it most in their power to completely misunderstand what you're doing are also in range. And they can get at you as easily and quickly as you can get at them. So you learn a certain level of discretion as quickly as you can. Um, I remember saying to Peter at, at some point recently, you know, Right now, it's kind of dangerous to be a woman breathing and having a mouth on the internet. Um, mm -hmm. This is not a safe time. And, and he's been watching what's been happening. And I, I generally, you know, I keep him uh, appraised as best I can because he is not, well, let's put it this way, he's the same person who doesn't spend as much time online as I do. <laughs> and so I sometimes have to explain to him, like, what doxing is. Or you know what's going on with the Sarkeesian, or you know one of many strange things that are happening on Tumblr. Um, you know he'll show me a meme and he'll say, what, "What is that? What is this thing meme over here?" And I, you know, trace it back to him. Uh, but I said to him at one point, you know, I'd rather like to make sure that if anyone took that something I said, that we were covered as well as possible. And I sort of went looking, you know, for places where. Uh, I might have committed indiscretions online in the past. I was happy enough to find, leaving the indiscretion aside, um, that anybody who, you know, really wanted to start boxing this would, it would take a little more work than usual, a little bit more work, because from the beginning, I've had a level of mistrust in terms of what you put online and where it's going to go after that. Um, the internet world right now is a, is a vast range of unintentional, you know, occurrences of, of techniques and, and uh, uh, so forth that, that they may have meant to be, meant to do one thing and they were invented. Now they're doing something completely different. Twitter is behaving in a way these days completely other, I'm sure than what its inventors originally intended. Facebook is acting completely differently from, you know, whatever What's-His-Face was thinking of when he invented it. And as a result, you just have to be cautious about what you put out there, lest it come back and bite you in some new and unexpected way. So I've, I've always been a little bit careful about that. Um, way back in the day, when I first started writing professionally. 
um, I found that uh, what you say can be misunderstood in God a vast number of, of ways, even be it ever so innocent or mad. So I just started being very careful about you know, how to manage things. I, I think I'm fortunate in only having melted down online once or twice. Um, and not in any way as spectacular as some other writers I know have. But there, there comes a day, I think, for all of us where you see something on the screen and it is so outrageous that you have to say, oh God, oh God, I must sit down and write a post about that, that immediately. And then, if you're fortunate, kindly hands pull you away from the computer. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm lucky always to have Peter there to backstop me at those moments when it, it gets worst and God sometimes it's just like yeah. um, sometimes I'm better reined in and thank God uh, I've got the right man at my back to do it so that works he, he is very much the Watson to my Sherlock in this regard <laughs> you know, I, and, I, and, and he functions exactly that way, and it, it, it's really nice to know that you know someone has your back, and someone will keep you from making really, really stupid errors. I know, but, you know, it's too tempting. It's too easy to go off quickly when you see something new that makes you angry or makes you passionate. So you, know, you got you to be a little bit careful. For example, on Tumblr, you've asked people to use the tag not UDD for, I guess, fan fiction for young wizards. and It seems a courtesy. I mean, you know, I want to read everybody's stuff in, insofar as it's appropriate for me to read it. Um, I don't want to see things that, you know, aren't meant for me to see. And the, the joke is that, that having asked people to use that tag, I then got some bounce back from some other people who claimed I was censoring the fandom and, you know, bending them to my will. You know, believe me, I'm here to tell you, if I wanted to bend anyone to my will, they would know they'd been bent. <laughs> um, you may rely on it. They'll know. Um, but it was just one more confirmation for me at that point that if there's any way that someone online will completely wrest what you meant into some shape that in no way approaches what you meant by it, it'll happen. I guarantee you. Yeah. But it, yeah, it, it's I, very I think funny. there's definitely a a point where you go, well, you're gonna be pissed off no matter what I do, so I can do whatever I need to do. It's true. And that's, and that's very freeing. Yeah, it, no, it, it's the truth, and and that is that is liberating in its way. Um, when you realize that no matter what you do, no matter how correct you try to be, no matter how thoughtful and mindful you try to be of what's going on in other people's heads, you know what? You're not a mind reader. Oh God! You know, if we were all Professor X, we would none of us have these problems. But we're not, and you know, and and sooner or later, someone's going to take offense. And all you can do is take a deep breath, let it out, and say, "You know what? You didn't get it. I hear you. Let's move on." And you can try very hard to be as um, non-toxic about it as you can. Because you don't mean to hurt anybody. You never do. Um, it, it's just astonishing sometimes. I, I, I get onto Tumblr in the morning and I see stuff where you know people have just, it would seem willingly, willfully taken other people's meaning at the worst it can be taken. And I just clutch my head and say, no, 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 no. And then I walk off and have tea. 
<laughs> because that's all you can do. Go get some caffeine, deal with your blood sugar, come back later. <laughs> Somebody has described Tumblr as the wall of the teenager's bedroom of the internet. <laughs> and I find yeah. that very apt. I find that very apt. And right, there are moments when some of the things I see first thing in the morning, I say, Yep, it's the bedroom wall, and I get up and I walk off and I go make toast. <laughs> Nothing else to be done. Yeah, we've talked about Tumblr culture and how it really is the wall of the teenager's bedroom because either everything is, oh my god, absolute perfection, or it's the worst thing ever yes. that ever happened. Yes. So you're either in ecstasy or condemnation the whole time. Right. And that magic middle ground that you start begin to suspect the existence of in your 30s. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a long way away, a long way off. And uh, I don't mind being in that place. A lot of my readers are in that place. Um, I've been in that place. You know, I was there for a long time. I mean, I had as long a teenage period as anyone else did. And I... If there is a difference, maybe it's that I remember how that felt. Um, as with anyone else, I have managed to, you know, block or paper over some of the most painful memories to the point where I can engage with them routinely in, in a more clinical manner, um, particularly when I'm writing about them. But... Uh, the rest of the time, you know, the the craziness, the fangirling, the gaiety, and the you know, desperate anger, and the you know righteous indignation that you know, just comes boiling out of your ears, and you know your fury at a world that doesn't work the way it ought to. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what rational being doesn't experience those and admit it? Um, I think it's those of us who try to pretend that that never happened to us um, are the ones who pay the highest price because the, those earlier states of being will catch up with you and reassert themselves if you don't accept them. It, it's uh, one of these old sayings, what, what you don't accept will rule you until you do accept it and you're able to move on. Um, so, you know, I'm the oldest 62-year-old teenager you're likely to know, but that's okay with me. I, that, that, that's a place I like, and that's a place I need to be. That, that's, um, it's useful for my writing. It's useful in keeping a sense of how my readers see the world. Um, I remember seeing a, a comment to uh, a posting I did some, gosh, it must be six months ago, nine months ago now, um, on my own blog about the, the idea of the Amtrak writer's residency and how I thought this was a terrible idea because essentially by doing it you signed off everything, the rights to everything you wrote on this residency to Amtrak. I thought, screw that. Um, my agent, my first agent, my best agent, you know, still my agent, Mama, said to me, you never sign away world rights to anything, anything. And one of the comments to that post was, well, you know, this is, this is a very nice post, except that the writer keeps falling into this, like, teen argot. <laughs> what the hell do you mean teen argot? This is the language I speak. I speak the way 
I hear my readers speaking often enough. They and I are in the same space. Uh, we're not that far apart. You don't have to be 14 all the time to be 14, <laughs> you know, or 16 or 20. Um, I've done all those things. I remember how it is. Um, you know, and the more practiced you get at accessing those memories, the easier it gets to express what it felt like to be, you know, in, in the mid-teens in particular, just awash in a world of endless possibility and what appears to you when you're 14, complete powerlessness. Because you can't do anything because they won't let you. You know, God forbid you cross the street by yourselves anymore. I mean, really, some of the stuff I see about, you know, raising children in the States these days in particular, uh, thank God it hasn't penetrated to Ireland. But, you know, parents absolutely freaking with the, the, the idea that their kid might go to, you know, a, a, like a, a soda shop and actually speak to a stranger. You know, what are you supposed to do when you're 18? You're supposed to be suddenly, you know, you're a full-formed adult. You know exactly what to do. Not if you hadn't had some practice first. And they're raising half-raised, tired generation of people who have no practice at knowing how to exist in the world, exist in the world, period. And then, you know, they push you out the door and say, fine, go to college now, have fun. Oh, by the way, don't do drugs. <laughs> right. You know? and, and then they complain that, you know, teenagers spend all of this time online and they never go outside. Well, sure, because you never let them go outside or be where yes. adults aren't. So they go to True. the only unregulated spaces to try and figure out who they are without the, the watchful eyes of the protective adults the watching them. And Yeah, this kind of endlessly curated childhood. Um I am possibly one of the last generation of people who, you know, was raised in a suburb of New York City who knows what it's like to go out and, um, you know, just go out for the afternoon and not have anyone care where you went. And when you came back in and they said, well, what did you do this afternoon? You said nothing. They believed you, you know? A long time ago, and that afternoon might have been in the library in, in town, or lying on your back in the neighbor's, you know, thistly field, staring at cloud shapes, or, you know, something like that. But, but you weren't actually doing anything bad, and, and you wouldn't say nothing, and they knew you meant nothing, because it was nothing. <laughs> you know, they trusted you to mean nothing. That's why the plot of the first now, Young Wizards books works, because you didn't get, get to strange. That's exactly what that harks back to, and you know, I, I remember that. And now, for some people, it's like lost paradise. They've never experienced anything like that, where your parents trust you, where your parents let you be, um, and just let you find your own way, instead of you know you having lessons for something every hour of the day and then homework the rest of it until you fall over exhausted, uh, and and. You know, it's, it's, I can't imagine what it's like now. The teenagers growing up who, who literally, some of them, do not have a single hour in the day to call their own except what they can steal under the covers with their cell, you know, on Tumblr or something in the middle of the night. Um, and that's their lifeline to the world that, you know, believes them when they say nothing. Um, it, it's got to be tough. Be very, very hard, but, it, but it's my job to imagine myself into that position, to imagine mm -hmm. how I would feel back. 
and fortunately, I'm good at that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very illuminating hearing you talk about it because the books I know you best for are really all about empowering teenagers. It's about kids who have all the power in the world. Yep. You get to go to different the, galaxies and not just... The turning point there was very much when I realized what I had uh, was when my editor on, on Deep Days of Earth, Aldo Lewinsky, who came up against the scene uh, about halfway through the book where the kid, Nita comes out to her parents and, and her parents say, no, we forbid you, you cannot do this. You that. Nita says, how are you planning to stop me? <laughs> exactly. And Kit then says, you know, if necessary, you could just forget all about this. And suddenly, the tables flip. And suddenly, it becomes plain. These people can either rage against it and have their memory of what their daughter is doing removed, or they can bow gracefully to the inevitable and compromise and be bowing gracefully to the inevitable thing. That's an adult talent, and it is too little exercise these days. Um, and I, I was very much against, you know, a point where I said, look, this can either be the classic, typical, almost like typo now, um, story where, you know, the kids have secret powers and the adults know nothing about it. Or we can break through and move on to something else, because I think there's something better on the far side of that. Um, and... My editor was going, but you're, you're teaching kids to disrespect their parents. I'm saying, no. Teaching the kids to expect their adults to treat them like reasoning beings. And my editor said, oh, okay. And, and it was all right. It, it was all right. And, and, you know, the book went on, and the New York Public Library made it, you know, the best, you know, best read book. Reluctant teens or whatever it was for that year. And my editor said, I guess, I guess you knew. And I said, yeah, I did. Leave it with me. I'll do okay. And that was the, <laughs> you know. So now we're, we've hit book 10. And uh, I was just reading. I, I'm in late rewrite at this point on, on the manuscript. We're, we're adding some final touches before it goes to, to press. And uh, my editor said, you know really know where you're at here, don't you? <laughs> Mysteriously. Yeah. Let's move on. You know, I'm still thinking about a book 11. I still don't have a title for that one. It's going to be insane. <laughs> Normally the title is first for me. And then the end of the book comes first, and then the beginning of the book, and then God help me the middle. Uh, middles. Uh, nice. But uh, I, know, I know what it's about. I just didn't have the right title for it. Something will come up. Sure. As long as it has Carmela in it, she's my favorite. Oh yeah. <laughs> in book eleven, you have no fear of that. <laughs> I, I cannot. I really can't get into it too much at this point. No, I can't I... get into it too much at this point. Um, except you know, for the little bits and pieces. I'm late on the bits and pieces again. Um, I didn't get them up last night. Uh, we were, as I say, still in reaction after the Hobbit. Um, I should have just, you know, stacked them up in the buffer and let them be in It's been a bit of a crazy move. Um, before we get a lot into Young Wizards, I really wanted to ask, how do you, I mean, how does the transition from nursing to pitching stories to Gene Roddenberry happen? Well, <laughs> it, it, takes, it takes a while to do that. 
Um, it has to be said that psychiatric nursing is the best possible preparation for being a, a writer. Um, all of good psych nursing, I speak of it in terms of what are now sometimes uh, sort of dismissively referred to as the talking therapies in these days when theoretically there's a design, you know, an anti-hypnotic or anti-depressant or anti-whatever for everything. Um, it's all about motivation at the end of the day. You have to ask yourself, why would someone do this? What makes someone behave this way? Um, or sometimes the classic question is, how do you raise someone so they'll act like this? And answering that question um, in the way that a psychiatric nurse would answer it clinically, diagnostically, will give you hints as to why your character would behave that way. Um, and that, that's really what happened with it. Um, I, I realized while I was still in nursing school that this was kind of the missing link in the god-awful fan fiction I've been writing until that point. Oh dear. Um, are you kidding? Monkeys in Star Trek, huge Cubans, honestly. <laughs> and I can see those pages, like they're burned into my brain. Um, burned all of them a long time ago now, but just as well. But if I understand the urge toward fanfic better than most, which because you know, I knew that. I, I, you know, I did that, I was there. I wanted a way into that universe, but I didn't know what that looked like. Um, I wasn't going to know what it looked like for another 15 years. And then suddenly, having persevered, um, you know, you publish your first book, and then you read some of the, this was the next step in it. Um, after The Door into Fire came out, I was reading an associate's Star Trek novel. Nothing could convince me to tell you that. And it got me so angry, so angry. I throwing that thing at the wall, I said, I could eat a ream of typing paper and barf a better Star Trek novel than this. <laughs> you know, I was just so angry. All, all I saw was, you know, this vast landscape of missed opportunities. And so I said, fine. And the outline for that, which turned into The Naked Sky, took me about three days to write. I was so angry. I write really well when I'm angry. Anger is a tremendous, tremendous impetus for me. So I finished this thing, and I called my agent. I said, Don, guess what? He said, what? I said, I'm going to write a Star Trek novel. And it was this long pause. And he says, you have to. I said, yes, yes, I have to. It was going to be the best one that anyone's seen so far. He said, okay. Um, so let's, let's have the outline. And it was, as it turns out, a bit of a lapse because they were actually changing um, publishers. They had been published with Bantam at that point, and they were changing over to Simon & Schuster, uh, Pocketbook Scissors. And essentially, there was, there was sort of a six-month lapse, and the editors called me and said, yeah, yeah, why not? Roll. And I said, good. And, you know, wrote the book and turned them. And didn't know what effect it was going to have. And, and even now, when you drop a book into the abyss, there's, there's a bit of a, a wait before you hear the splash. And back then, you turn a book in, and there would be a six to nine month 
wait before you hear the splash at the bottom of the well, he says, you know, finally popped up. And the world come after that. I met somebody, a friend, a writer. They said, you know what you did there? I said, I don't know. They said, you just wasted a theoretically Hugo-winning novel on Star Trek. I sort of looked at them like they were out of their fucking mind, pardon my French. And I said, you know, what do you mean wasted? Nothing is wasted. That story was told there because it was the best story I could tell in that universe. It could not have told anywhere else with any other characters. I told it there by choice. I didn't tell it there because, you know, it, it was easy to do, or it was a media project, or, you know, it would, it would attract more attention that way. I told it there because that was the only place I could tell that story. What is your problem? And they sort of wandered off, rolling their eyes at my night tech. Well, um, so now, a lot later, that book is still held by some people as one of the best Star Trek novels ever written, except maybe in Spock's world. God forbid I should argue with him. Um, well, eight weeks on the New York Times list. Who am I to argue? Um, the Times critics seemed to think there was something there. More to the point, Gerald Jonas, who was interviewing for um, the New Yorker, uh, took me aside when we came out. It was like the year after that, or the year before. I don't even know. With the, uh, the computer game, Star Trek, the, the Kobayashi alternative, for which I wrote the text. And he said, this is really intelligent stuff. You're treating this like it's it's for real. Like, you're taking it seriously. And I looked at him, again, as if he dropped the mark. I said, how else would you take it? You know, why would you read a novel? Or why would you waste your time writing a novel that you didn't take seriously? What's the matter with people, really? I didn't quite slap him around the head. I mean, he, he was too, you know, eminent and, and smart for that. But it just seemed to me a very dumb question at the time. Um... Why would you write anything that you didn't do the basic courtesy of taking seriously? And it would seem that's what works, about, about the Trek books at least, that I did them the courtesy of taking them seriously. And, well, well, good, it was about time someone did, really. And others have followed in, in that mode. Um, you know, Peter David, who is, we routinely refer to as at, at, around the house as my other husband. Because everyone thinks, a lot of people think they're married. And people hear me talking about Peter all the time, and they think Diane, Star Trek, Peter, Star Trek. Therefore, Peter David, Diane White. No, <laughs> you know, he thinks it's hysterical, and we, we refer to each other all the time on Twitter as other husband, other wife. And and I don't know what people make of that. <laughs> Their problem. But from there, you know, you write the books, you write the books, you write the books, you write the books, and then finally, um, along comes a magic day. When uh, we're living out in this story editing dinosaurs at the time. And I love that show. That I love that show so much. I had so much fun with that. Brynn and I, my, my co-story editor and I, we had so much fun with that. It was also one of those um, kind of groundbreaking experiences where you, you're faced with the impossible and you just do it. Um, when my buddy... Uh, Robbie London, who was the vice president of doing cool things at Deke at that point, hired me on. He hired me on in November to be story editor of this thing. He said, we'll get the clearances through by Christmas and, you know, you'll be writing in the new year. I said, fine, cool. And the clearances essentially are the permissions you need in various markets where the thing would be aired. 
And as it happens, because of my insane stupidity regarding Coca-Cola buying deep or something like that, I don't know what it was. Anyway, our clearing system did not come through until March, indeed until St. Patrick's Day of that year. And I said, Robbie, okay, so they're through. So what does this mean for us now? He says it means you have until July to um, produce and or write and turn in 65 half hours. <laughs> and went, oh, dear. Or as, as our, our Northern Irish friend Charles likes to say, fuck me, we're off. <laughs> you know, so I said, all right, we're in trouble now. Um, so I did what I could at the time. Uh, my friend Bryn Stevens, uh, Michael Reeves' wife then, was uh, story editing another series at Deke. I said, Bryn, when you're finished with that, come over here and give me a hand because I'm, I'm going to sink here. And the two of us essentially walked on water for the next four months to get those 65 episodes put where they needed to be. So that was fine. Um, and while this was occurring, Bryn's husband, Michael, Michael Reeves, um, as, as was then, uh, he said, look, I'm getting ready to pitch to the new Next Generation thing. And indeed, who wasn't? Because frankly, everyone who had, you know, a brain and a pseudopod to call their own was pitching to, to Next Generation at that point. But the problem was you could only pitch if you were a guild member, which I was not. And Michael was Rogers Guild, and he said, look, I keep working on this pitch, and it keeps sounding like the one in Scott. So do you want to come and pitch with me? And I said, what part of yes do you not understand? <laughs> and, and we went forward together, and we went and pitched. And frankly, you know, look, I've scrubbed in for brain surgery. That was a less frequent than this. Significantly less frequent than this. Um, but it got better. Uh, Bob Justman, David Jordan was there, Bob Justman was there, and he was on the pitch. When Bob Justman describes a story as the Star Trekiest Star Trek story he has ever heard, you have to sort of take courage from that. So we did. And we went forward and we wrote our thing. And uh, then the usual studio crap started to happen because there was already infighting, you know, um, when money begins to descend on a television project. Immediately, power struggles begin to who who's editing, who gets scripts, you know, fill in the blank. Um, and Michael and I were cut off at first draft. And this is not unusual in television. You don't care, frankly. If you're grown up about it, you take a deep breath, you let the deep breath out, you say, it's okay, the check cleared, and you move on. Um, and we were told at the time that we had been cut off at first draft because of, quote-unquote, time considerations. Now, everyone who has story edited, and God knows, again, dinosaurs and other projects, you know that sometimes it's going to take less time for you to rewrite a project yourself in the office than it is to send it back to the writer and have them rewrite it. And sometimes you just cannot spare the extra week two weeks it might take to do that. So Michael and I looked at each other and went, uh, you know, we, we check cleared. We moved on. Then we found out it took three times as long for the guy who was rewriting the script to write it as we took to write it the first time out. And then they fired him for taking so long. Okay, so time considerations at this point becomes kind of a, a, a hollow show. We knew exactly where we were fired. We were on the wrong side of an intramural argument amongst the staff. Everybody 
who this particular staff member brought in was fired so that, you know, the new person who was taking over the person's business couldn't write everything they'd done. And, uh, well, you know, no good came of it. So what can I say? Uh, cheaters never prosper. Uh, but it was it was a bit of a baptism of fire. It was my first experience with live action drama, and since then, God, I've seen a lot worse, a lot worse. And that was actually an excellent preparation. So that that's the path. It, it, it seems very crooked, <laughs> you know, you know, when you come at it. But it turns out that along the line, all the tools I needed to cope with that process were put into my hands, each at the proper stage of the process. So I kind of learned. Expect that the universe will take care of me that way. But if I've got to do something I've never done before, that I will look around and I'll find that the tools have been put in my hand. And all I need to do is figure out how to use them most effectively. You know, on someone's head, up their nose, other orifices, got all those. So what else can I tell you? Uh, before we move on from your television work, I'm a huge fan of gargoyles. <laughs> uh, aren't they great? Yeah, I love Michael that. was. Michael was co-story editing that, and he invited us in, um, and so Peter and I did uh, two. We did um, The Hound of Ulster, which is absolutely Peter's baby, and, and uh, is a retelling of the Koholan uh, man. And I remember him saying to Michael, can we get someone who actually has a decent Irish accent for this? Uh, you know, not somebody who's going to do the, the classic stage Irish be dad and be Jesus and all the hard crap. And Michael said, well, who do you want in? And Peter said, immediately, call me. And so they got him. And so he's in there. Uh, and they found some really excellent young actor with a strong but understandable Ulster accent to be the, the kid who was going to be called. That worked well. And then we did um, Ill Met by Moonlight, which was the um, sort of Shakespearean one. And, and we had a lot of fun with that. So it was really, really enjoyable, a happy time. I love my animation work. I always want That's why I keep going back. Uh, people say, why do you keep talk, you know, talking about cartoons like they're real long? And I'm going, what's the matter with you? Of course they're real long. It's a very specific art form with the same rule. Uh, during one of the earlier, earlier writers' games, um, I'm guessing, yeah, it would have been in the days. It would have been the year of the sixth one. Um, you had a lot of people who were you know, live-action drama writers come in and say, oh, I'll, go, I'll keep myself alive by slumming a bit. I'll come and do some animation work. How hard could it be? Well, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. In particular, animation script routinely needs 30 seconds per page rather than a minute per page as normal screenplay does. And any writer who doesn't know that right out of the gate most animation studio or story editors that I know would look at it and say, fine, throw the script over their shoulder. Next. Because who, who can waste their time with someone who won't learn the rules before they even start working? Um, I have to say, there's a certain amount of scorn. Uh, if, if you won't even learn the rules before you pitch, I mean, it's like, God, what is the matter with these rules? You know? I mean, seriously, would, would you, you know, do brain surgery without basic aseptic technique? I think not. So, I'm not saying that animation is brain surgery, but there are moments. As someone who's done both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. So, Young Wizards, I mean, I own, I think, four different editions of Young Wizards. Okay. 
That can be bad. I'm a fan, one might say. <laughs> well, she is. She's been talking about the series for uh, two and a half years now. Okay. She watched. <laughs> Not a bad thing, I would no. say. Look, I've been thinking about it for 30 years on and off, so you, know, you got to forgive me. It, it, it's a bit of an evil fix. Yeah. Uh, but in, in the best way. I mean, I saw something, but I wish I could remember whose article it was. I'd love to quote it, in particular on Tumblr. Um, they're talking about what it takes to make a really accomplished YA writer. And God knows we all aspire to be that. And whoever wrote this article, they said, the thing that you need to make a really accomplished YA writer, they need to be old. Um, in particular, I mean, they're quoting C.S. Lewis, they're quoting, um, uh, God love it, um, name is just falling right out of my head, um, uh, A Wrinkle in Time, thank you, Madeline Langle, no. uh, and the thing that makes their YA fiction stand out a bit is that they have enough clear blue water between them and being between, say, 13 and 22, to acquire a certain level of um, a, way, a way to take it, I'm not saying less seriously, but to be a bit more analytical about it, and a, a way to have more time to process the feelings that you felt then. I mean, if you're going to feel the feels feelingly, um, that's fine, but it helps you to clarify them if it's been 20 or 30 years since you felt exactly that way. And what I'm finding now is that writing in Wizards is getting easier now that I'm in my 60s than it was when I was in my 50s and my 40s because I have more distance to analyze and to assume and internalize all that stuff that was, you know, the, the source of such turmoil when I was in my teens and twenties. Um, I've got retrospective. I've got retrospect on it. I think that really matters. Um, I think Games Wizards play. I mean, it's a different. It's a different book. I think some people are going to say it's too different. I think some people are going to say it's much better than the last one. Um, I'm in a different place. Uh, I've got another, you know, five or ten years under my belt, and it's it's interesting, especially because you know the characters also are moving on. I'm in a situation where I'm now in a position to harmonize the new millennium edition timeline with what we have coming out in the real world. I would very much like it the sooner that Harcourt went to the new millennium editions, you know, the sooner the better for me. That won't happen for a while. I think we need a TV series or one there. And, you know, that'll come when it comes. Uh, there are a couple things in development right now we're working on. But um, I think we all now have the understanding after 10 books, if these characters aren't like a little bit older now, there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. So I think the, the understanding here uh, with games with play is that everybody is sort of, you know, our leads are 15 going on 16 anyway. Kinda. Uh, there's a certain amount of cheating the dates in this because I don't want to get too 
specific to avoid uh, conflicting with what Harcourt presently has. Yeah, not the Yeah, it works. It works. Um, and it's very different. The the entire uh, story happens in Earth orbit. There is no sort of mucking about another planet. This is all local. And there's a lot of fun stuff in there, <laughs> if I do say so myself. So, you know, as I say, we're, we're in rewrite. I'm having some final touches now. And, uh, I think I think it's worthy. I think it, it's it's uh, it carries on correctly. Um, there will be people who say that the books have a kind of a pattern. You get a serious one, a funny one, a serious one, a funny one. Kind of, kind of. This is the funny one. The next one is not going to be funny at all. Not at all. Um, we're going to see the flip side of what it is to be a wizard working in the real world. It's going to be most uncomfortable. And about time. Um, this is data that has needed to be dealt with for, for a while. And in particular, this next book, 11, the Untitled 11, will solve material that has been hanging fire since book one. So it's going to be quite interesting. I can't wait to see what I write. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the rest of it. You know, the, the, Thanks, the now I'm unprepared. Like, okay. really, really, the little voice, there's always the little voice in the back of your head that says, why do you say shit like this? <laughs> do you know what you're getting us into? <laughs> you know, and, and you shout that voice down. You really do. Every morning, you sit down and you say, shut up. We're just going to work now. We're just going to do the work. You know, it's no big deal. The work, capital W, as in Sherlock. Um, you know, you're just, it's going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. You're lying. I've read your books. It's not fine. <laughs> it, will be all, it will be all right. You know. Listen, what kind of writer would I be if I tried to pass off on my leadership? I use the term pass off specifically. It's a crime here. Passing off is a crime in, in British usage. But anyway, um, the idea that, you know, everything was always going to be okay at the end. What kind of crap is that? This is not a preparation for living in the world we all inhabit. You know perfectly well that some shit will never be right. Some things will always go wrong. Some things will go wrong spectacularly. The best I can do is essentially create wounds that can be healed. And it, it goes back to that Chesterton thing. You know, kids don't want to know whether dragons are real or not. So they want to know, can they be killed? You know, you don't want to know, is the thing under your bed, let's do Monsters Incorporated here for a moment, the thing in the closet, you know, is it real or not? They want to know, can you stop it? Can you keep me safe from it? Um, that's the point of intersection. And the point of intersection is, however bad things get, there's always a level of repair available, a level of transcendence, of, of um, redemption. It may not be the level you had in mind, but it is available. Never give up, never surrender, but keep your eyes open, you know, and be realistic. It, it's kind of a cool thing to say, um, and, and may seem oxymoronic when you're writing fantasy literature, but once again, the more truth you mix in a fantasy novel, the stronger it gets. And the more it means to the people who read it. 
uh, a fantasy novel that is all, you know, airy-fairy bubbles and shines and, you know, everybody is happy at the end. What the hell use is that? No one is going to believe it. And they will discard it, you know, for more meaty content. Uh, the least I can do is share with my readership the sense that, look, let, let's, you know, let's be real here, all right? The world's fucked. But there are still parts of it that can be made to work if you don't give up, if you don't just throw your hands right in the air. There will always be pain, but you can move through it. There is hope on the other side if you just keep moving. Don't stop. And, you know, that's the heart of it. It's really been the heart of the series all the way through. Um, that, you know, sometimes like, bad shit is going to happen. It's going to happen. This is reality we're dealing with here. And I would be doing less than a service to the people I write for, you know, if I pretended it were otherwise. We're all in this together. Junk happens. But if you keep moving and keep your wits about you and hang on to your brains and hang on to your friends and have people never stop looking for people who you can, you know, share your vision with and who will have your back. Because you will find them if you keep looking. If you, don't, if you stop looking, you'll never find them. You must always have your eyes open. Um, and it's routinely at the point where you say, that's it, it's never going to happen to me, that they turn up. You know, uh, that would be the message. Just just don't give up. Just hang on. It, it, I can't say everything will work out, but things will work better if you don't give up than if you give up. If you do, it, it's, you know, it's reality. This is, this is where we live. What, what else could one say? I have a story for you, which I think illustrates just how well your readers understand the stakes okay. of the book. Uh, I was on mm. Tumblr and I typed up the wizard's oath and mm. then I put a little commentary how for a certain generation this was you know their letter from Hogwarts how we read the book yeah. and when we stood I stood in the middle of the room and kind of whispered it out loud kind of just in case if I had a nickel for every time I heard this I'd have a lot of nickels <laughs> but I had somebody reblogged that with a comment who a woman I think it was a woman who said she never did that specifically because it was such a terrible responsibility that she was afraid if yeah. it were true, she was she knew she wasn't right, like she couldn't do it. Fair enough. I mean, everybody has to, you know, assess where they are for themselves. Um, you know, God, it's not just that magic will not live in the unwilling heart; it will probably not also live in the unready heart. Mm -hmm. You have to be ready to commit. And that leap is huge. You know, if I were dealing in meta, I would suggest there are many people probably who, you know, saw that and said, no, I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that. And, you know, no harm to them and no shame to them. They were smart enough to be clear about where they were or to where they thought they were. And uh, that's, you know, that's part of the, the natural order. You wouldn't say a word against it. Everybody knows at a certain gut level. Um, excuse me. Let me just you know remove a headphone here. Um, 
Yes, Whitney, what's up? Okay, um, I'm upstairs in the back room corner table. <laughs> See you shortly. Bye. What's his that ring to- he's, he's, he's been at my phone. He's done terrible things to it. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Like he, said, he said, your ringtones are all screwed up. I said, yes, fine, do whatever you want to do. And now my phone is making sounds that I'm not sure God intended. You know? Uh, <laughs> what can one say? Anyway, where were we before the bagpipes interrupted me? I have questions for you as a fan, because you're a very active fan on Tumblr, so I was going to pose uh, to either or. If you could write for any one of the doctors, which doctor would you write for? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. You know, Peter Davison has always been my favorite. <laughs> always. Uh, of the modern doctors, I think I probably like David Tennant best. Um, but I think, I think Davison Miller, he had something very special, very, it was an innocent quality to him that I liked. Peter Davison was the one that subtly dropped into Wizard's book, right? That was yeah. the doctor? Yeah. Yeah. He, he appears in High Wizardry recently. Right. Um, okay. I'm going to have the BBC on me, I sh- you know, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, they've had worse, I'm sure, or I have. Um. If you could write for Sherlock or the Jeremy oh, Brett one. Which God. One? Oh, dear God. You know, here's the deal. I'm not sure I'm smart enough to write for modern Sherlock. I, I could, no question, write for um, Brett's. The, the way they handled the adaptation in, in the Brett, through the Granada Sherlock. Um, they have raised the bar so high in terms of clever. And I don't, I, I tend not to think of myself as terribly clever, which is, uh, I suppose, a funny thing. But, th- I'm, you know, there, there are properties that your pleasure is to put your feet up and watch them do it. And, you know, second-guess them from a safe distance. <laughs> I, you know, it would be, it would be an honor to be asked, and it would freak me out. It would freak me badly, I would probably freeze. So, you know, it's maybe not not a place where I would need to be. Um, I have other places to work where I'm the only one who can do that work. Uh, and I really like watching what Moffat and, and uh, uh, Mark Davis are doing. I like Mark Davis a whole, whole lot. He is such a smart writer. So just, you know, put my feet up and shout at the screen, <laughs> which I suspect a lot of other people do. One of us, one of us. Mm-hmm. True that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I think you've mentioned before that Young Wizards has been optioned for TV. Often. Often. Early. <laughs> often. Oh, God, how many times? Again, I'd have, I'd have a lot of nickels. Um, routinely optioned. Usually about once every two or three years by people who don't know what to do with it. Um, I've stopped allowing that. Uh, the word now is uh, if they want to make it as a miniseries or a feature, um, I'm going to be executive producing and I will be one of the senior writers. Um, I have enough credential now. I have 20 years of screenwriting behind me, a couple films, a couple miniseries. They have no excuse to exclude me. I know the format. I know the story. 
And more the point, I know how to stay out of its way. I know that an adaptation is not necessarily the broken process. So they're just going to have to deal with me. Uh, because at the end of the day, whatever other writing I've, I've done that you know, I might like better or feel more passionately about, this is the thing I'm going to be remembered for. So I feel more than usual responsibility to make sure it's done As a result, I'm limiting uh, pitches to people that I feel I could actually work with without destroying them. And uh, right now that's down to two or three production companies all of which I'm talking to, um, excuse me, after I put the roses, hello, wow. um, and, uh, you know, that, that's pretty much the size of that, we'll, we'll see where it goes, I'm in no rush, you know, it's waited 30 years, it can wait a little bit longer, but now, more to the point, instead of it happening much too soon, at a point where I could prevent bad things that might happen to it, it's waited long enough that I have credential that will exactly serve preventing bad things from happening to it. Um, so I'm willing to, you know, relax and put my feet up and say, fine, you know, come talk to me, we'll sort something out. Yeah. Just, you know, you're going to have to exact me, we'll sort it out with Bill Brennan. I mean, this is the other side of being a writer. This is the sort of cold-blooded um, businessman song that, you know, a lot of younger writers have trouble imagining themselves fulfilling. Um, they say, no, but this is, you know, this is the love of my life. This is my great passion. I could never be that, you know, controlling, that, that manipulative, that cold. Watch. <laughs> you know, just watch. It is the art you learn, um, especially the longer you are in film and television. Um, just be clear that you are, of course, to be reckoned with, that they cannot leave you out of the reckoning. If they try, they're going to pull back a bloody stump. And uh, just essentially, you're there. You're going to be part of it. You will make their life harder than it needs to be, but you will keep them right. And at the end of the day, you know, everyone will get rich and have lots of rewards. What could be bad about that? So, um, you have to stay modest also. <laughs> <laughs> You know, sometimes you have to laugh. There, there is a difference which sometimes is not grasped between modesty and certainty in terms of your own work. And there comes a point where you decide it's time they took you seriously. That you will not go to any meetings as a suitor, desperate for acceptance. That you will walk in and say, here's the way it's going to be. My way? Or your way, which will essentially come to nothing. So let's pick one and move forward together. And then everyone's happy. Um, let's be clear. Um, you know, whose feet are on whose table, so to speak. Um, but anyway, we'll, um, we'll see how it goes. I have, I have no new data. Um, things are just sort of chugging forward in a, in a genteel and quiet way. And uh, they'll do that, you know. So where else? Oh. I'm sorry, I'm here. Oh, sorry, one quiet. No, I, I moved. I moved my pad. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> Sweetie. Sweetie, I left my card behind the um, behind the bar because I did not have enough cash on me to to cover this. So if you would cover that for me and, and reclaim my card, you could. 
Well, all right, bearing in mind, it's uh, 4, so we need to be out of here for sort of 4.30. We're fine. We're fine. We're good. We're, we're good. We're fine. There are cabs <laughs> outside, so we're, we're, we're okay. Um, I was actually curious, with you having experience in both, how different is it writing for characters that have a physical actor and therefore a voice versus writing for characters that, you know, that don't, so book versus TV? It can be a bit weird. Um, I mean, bearing in mind that uh, I wrote for Jean-Luc Picard before he was cast. And that was a bit peculiar. We had no idea. I mean, we had a general description of what they wanted him to look like, sound like, act like. We, we knew what he was like in terms of personality and where he'd been and where he was going. But we didn't have a face. And... I don't believe they actually cast him until after they turned out Dracula. A British actor with a French, <laughs> for a French character. No kidding. And, you know, then afterwards I said, holy shit, if I'd known that was who we were writing for, I would have been a lot more sexy. <laughs> you know, I said, you know, quietly to Michael and, and to Peter. And, you know, we all sort of shrugged because this is part of production. You, you can't tell. Um, there have been times I've, wrote, I've written for characters that I just had no idea what they looked like. All I had was a description of the way they felt. And that's fine. Um, often enough now, when I'm working, I won't be clear about the actual physical description of, of a character. But I'll know what's going on in their head. And so I'll just, you know, handle their dialogue that way and fill in the, the fine strokes later. Uh, it works well enough. I mean, it's a bit of a disconnect. Some people need a concrete image. Um, that wouldn't be my problem, thank God. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. Hold on. Uh, Raiden, um, yeah. so, so our kind of distribution here is that I'm the longtime childhood fan and Raiden is the new reader. <laughs> Okay. So why don't you throw her under the bus? Oh, thanks. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I uh, just uh, finished So You Want to Be a Wizard uh, <clears throat> okay. last night. Well, it was sort of early this morning. Like really Which edition? It was, it's the old one. I acquired okay. it uh, like not eight, nine years ago. And okay. it's been, it's been seasoning on my shelf since then. I will not pass your mark, I promise you. <laughs> Listen, um, I know how deep my to-read pile is. I am not going to argue with anybody else's. Right. Um, and one of the things that I really, really liked about it is, like, the hard, the important thing in um, setting up a magical world is you need to set up your rules. Mm. And it's something that I think that J.K. Rowling really didn't establish too well in Harry Potter was, how does this magic thing work? And there are certain aspects to it that, you know, are great, and there are certain aspects that seem kind of mushy, and you seem to have this really specific idea of, of what makes magic work, and I really don't have a question about it. <laughs> I really like that. I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. It is an issue for me. Um, I come of an early generation of readers of Ursula Gwynn, and her emphasis in UFC books on language and power and words and the defining quality of the magic of words, that's something real deep for me. Um, if anything, 
you know, I simply added a more science looking, math looking twist mm. to it. Excuse me, because I, yep, what's your name? Uh, oh. Anyway, um, so, you know, that's there. But I think also, I came to it a little bit earlier when I was working, you know, on the, on the, on the fire. It, it, it became plain to me that magic without rules is a waste of everybody's time. Mm -hmm. That this is, it's, it's a subversion of the rule about the more truth you mix in a story, the stronger, you know, in the law, the stronger it gets. You must have limitations on your magic, your characters, there have to be limits. It's really important. Superman without kryptonite is not interesting at all. Um, so everything has to have a very specific set of limitations within work, within which it works. And Gwyn's idea that the saving quality of magic was that you were only able to control what you could precisely name and describe. That's something way deep. I said, that's what I need for this. Uh, it's got to be like that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, there's no other way it can be. That, that just became obvious for me from, from And that governed everything that came after. Uh, limitation is of primary importance. Because mushy magic, as you correctly put it, it's like, you know, wave your wand and shit happens. It's like, uh, no. And for various reasons, uh, which I've spelled out here and there. I, I have not read Potter books. I've seen the movies. I have no problem with that because a movie is not a book. Um, but I'm incredibly acquisitive as a writer. I will lift other people's stuff without a second thought. I did not want to take the chance of lifting something of hers, especially when there is this um, unfortunate but widespread idea that you know, my stuff is based on her somehow, mm -hmm. even though I came first. Right, like, 20 you know, years earlier. Like, I, I just want to smile. I just want to smile at the people who can't read copyright notices. Right. I want to smile, not smile, I want to whack over the head, people who actually think that hogwash, hogswash, comes from hogwash. You know, I want to smack them over the head and silly, frankly, they don't even go there. Um, it just annoys me. Uh, but in any case, Hogwarts first appeared in yeah, the Hogwarts books in 1950. Peter, yeah, Peter's quite right. Um, you know, Hogwarts appeared in Nigel Molesworth's material in the 50s that appeared in Punch. And I really wonder sometimes if you're only saw some of that material. It's, it's possible. Not my, not my favorite. Anyway. Um, not my division. Not my division. <laughs> it's your fault. That's on me. Uh, but anyway. Uh, the, uh, you know, rules. Otherwise, you know, when your characters can do anything you want. And, and I, I've looked, you know, I'm saying, I, I haven't read the books, but I've asked people a couple times, is there ever any explanation in, in Roland how, why this works? Not so much how, not so much how, why, why it works? What's the... She had. She mentioned the once rules, like three things, like you can't make something out of nothing type rules. Yeah, yeah. 
and some of it is genetics because she does go into well why are some people wizards and some aren't sure but that's yeah. as far as that goes it always struck me a bit like the victorian's argument you know but, but never mind um the the issue for me is that if that's as close as she ever got that says something about what she's actually writing about that hardly needs me to explain it. Mm -hmm. um, I was more interested in if there was going to be magic, why? Why would there be magic? Where did it come from? What is it based on? What are the rules? Uh, I mean, the idea of the Wizard's Manual is central. Um, you know, the whole idea of having explanations for things. No, on iPod. Well, you know, but why does stuff work the way it does? That says as much about me as a writer as the fact that she's never addressed that. It says about her. We're coming from very different directions. And that's what makes me laugh when I keep turning up on these reader articles. My work reads nothing like yours. And that's no. okay. It doesn't, and that's... And there's nothing, there's nothing alike between the two series, except they both have one wizards in it, period. There's nothing else. They are completely methodology, in terms of methodology, in terms of you know, psychology of everything, um, the basis on which it's built, nothing alike. And so people can say, you know, well, when you finish her, read this, and I'm like, yeah, do, but don't expect the same thing, because boy, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> you will not find it. But, you know, but that's okay. Um, you get used to. I was going to say functioning under that shadow, but that's just maybe not the image I want. Um, look, she's a giant. She's a phenomenon in this period. And that's, that's a magic thing, and those of us who are also working in this period have to learn how to coexist with her and, you know, not be bothered. And, um,. My husband is writing me strange notes about not apples and oranges, more oranges and limes. Oh, it's citrus. Fair enough. Excuse me. I have to kiss a forgive me for a second. Period. And when you speak her husband smacks me. Yeah, that would be exactly what happened. He's sitting here romancing me in terms of citrus food. I can't believe Yes, you know, it, it, well, you know, this is one of the good things about being a writer. You don't have to make these long explanations that you need to make everyone else prove that you're actually asleep. But also, to say nothing of writing hot love scenes. Yeah, hot love scenes. Let's go there, baby. But you know, why is this in first person? Hey, hey, hey! You know, I've been, I've been. He's been reading my Sherlock smut, all right? You know, not mine, but you know, he, he's been. He looks at the casual while asleep, and he thinks I'm asleep, and you know. Good grief. I, you know, I, I keep an eye on the smart. Look, I went to a good school, and two guys can't do that. Yes, they can. <laughs> Things not correct. <laughs> yes, they can do the argument of the mechanics is smut here, all right? You know, but anyway, um, this is a place, you know, this is a place, I, if I go there, I'm going to have to go there under a pseudonym at some point or another, because it becomes a challenge. You, you read some incredibly beautifully executed smut, you know? Let's not mince words. Beautifully done. And you say, you know, I wonder if I could do that. <laughs> and then you hear the voice from the next room saying, 
not under your present name, you better not, or some people are going to get real confused. And so I go, all right, if I was doing that, then what? And so it, that, that's, that's, a, that's a line of conjecture that is not yet complete. Um, you know, maybe later. I mean, God knows a lot of writers, excellent writers, make their daily bread doing erotica and then write their literature on what they make the erotica. You know, God forbid I should argue your does it feel weird that you know people are writing smut about your characters? Yeah. And you know what? <laughs> yeah. And I, I've learned this is short. Um, they're going to do what they do, frankly. They will do what they do, whether I like it or not. And therein lies wisdom. Um, there comes a point when you look around the world that surrounds you and you say, look, I could stand up here and have meltdown. Or... I could just kind of, you know, sit back in the chair, have another drink of wine, and say, you know what? The world will wend its way. Um, I have better things to do than waste. Excuse me for a second. Sorry? Oh, no, you can sit. As long as you don't mind me talking to the machine, we're good. Some nice people are joining us at the table, so don't worry about it. And and we, you know, I was taking the total. But anyway, no, it's it's not a trouble at all. You, you just kind of learn to sigh and say, um, I'm I'm doing a podcast with. Them. So, you know, no, you're good. You're good. Um. So anyway, you just kind of take a deep breath and say, you know, the world's going to do what it does. Uh, this is I wouldn't say it's a price that anyone pays, but this. Um, I'm sorry, I'm doing it in a way, like magazine, that's quite wonderful. Unless the word limbo is The lady just sat down with a copy of Life magazine, Life magazine from the moon landing. Now it's sort of drooling. But thank you, thank you for the opportunity, it's always, it's always fun. That's thank you so much for talking to us. Listen guys, it's brilliant, take care of yourselves, and I will talk to you later. Okay. Bye. 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 Oh my god. <laughs> She's so cool. She's so cool. This editing is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> I was sitting here like, like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm talking to her. This is so awesome. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. Okay. Do you want me to this... stop Because before the file gets big? Yeah. Okay, um, oh, let me hang up, because I, I don't like it crashing when I'm, and then I'll call you back. Okay. You have been listening to Anglophies, a Made of Fail production. Uh, and we only have an hour to torture, um, Hobbit spoilers out of you. Oh, God. You know, <laughs> we came away, actually, quite shattered. Um, I, I think it's partly because both of us know that the... Tolkien estate does not intend to allow any further uh, cinematic adaptations. And that's a real pain in the butt. People would love to see Farmer Giles at hand before they stop doing this. But apparently, uh, you know, the, the estate have decided they have all the money in the world. They don't need any more. And they don't, they don't, you know. It, I don't know just, what it, Christopher Tolkien doesn't like about these, but apparently he hates the movies. 
you know, who can say? It, it's it's it can be something really minuscule, or he just doesn't like the real world of having to engage with entertainment people. And I have to say, I've, I've engaged with my fair share of entertainment people in my time being one, and by and large, many of them are horrible. Um, and it, it's not necessarily the film people in question, the ones that he would find himself most closely working with, but it's really possible he doesn't like the upper levels of management, you know, line as was in the day, and whoever is fulfilling that position right now. Um, you know, if you're more used to the groves of academe uh, than dealing with film and television, it's very much like the Wild West. And maybe that's, maybe that's a bit much. You know, I, I can't really point a finger. I'm, I'm just sorry it's stopping now. And I, I think we're part of, a, part of the shattering quality for the two of us is this is it. There, you know, in, for the foreseeable future anyway, there will be no more. And it, it's a bit of a pain in the butt, frankly. You almost anyway. can't blame uh, Peter Jackson for spreading it out three movies if this is the last time he's going to get to do anything. <laughs> it's partly that, but it's also, frankly, a very big story. And when, in retrospect, you look back to uh, the background material that was not yet written then when The Hobbit was written, but has come to be written since when you look at all the material you know, in the Silmarillion and so forth, and you think how that interleaves with what we see in the bare narrative of The Hobbit, you know, very simple, plainly written, you know, for young children. Um, you go, wow, how could you not want to expand some of that material backwards and link forwards to the material that you've already done? I mean, if I were in his place, I'd do exactly the same thing. I, I cannot say a word about it. After that, it's all a matter of execution. Um, you know, would you have done X exactly the same way, or would you know, have done Y? And unfortunately, when you're dealing with screenwriters... <laughs> <laughs> we As are, a screenwriter, <laughs> we are always, you know, many are the disagreements of screenwriters, and we can always find a way that we would have done it if we had been sitting where they were. But the truth is, you know, they were sitting where they were sitting, they were the ones in the position to make those calls, and second guessing them is, at the end of the day, kind of a discourtesy. So, you know, you move on as best you can, you think, well, when I do mine, I won't. And then you start making a list. <laughs>